Welcome to the New America NYC podcast. This event was recorded on April 12, 2016, and is titled Breaking the Silence Surrounding Antenatal Depression, a Broadly Speaking Event, and features Andrew Solomon, author of Far From the Tree, Parents, Children, and the Search for Identity, Margaret Spinelli, clinical professor of psychiatry and founder of the Women's Program in Psychiatry at Columbia University, Jessica Gross, editor of Lenny Letter, and Catherine St. Louis, health reporter at the New York Times. So I, I guess I want to start with talking a bit about why is it that that pregnancy, uh, I mean, depression in pregnancy isn't more talked about? We can kind of start with the elephant in the room. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want me to talk? Oh, I mean, it's not more talked about because it's a complete bummer. Like, nobody wants to see as a joyful experience. And I think there's still a cultural pressure to pretend to be joyful whether you are or not. Um, So I came to this topic um, because I went through it with my first pregnancy. This is my second. I'm carrying my second now. Um, And I had had a history of clinical depression beforehand, and I had been medicated on and off for uh, probably eight or nine years before uh, I chose to get pregnant. Um, and at the time, it just seemed like the obvious choice was to go off medication because that seemed like the healthiest thing to do. I knew that there were some was risks. Was that a choice that you made or yeah. that a doctor suggested? No, it was all, um, I was just saying this to Margaret, it was sort of left into my hands. You know, this was a, a planned pregnancy. We, had, we were going to start trying and, um, you know, I despite being a journalist who wrote about science issues sometimes for Slate, I just assumed that it would be better to go off. And so I did. And uh, basically, I would say a week or two after I found out I was pregnant, I started feeling awful. I mean, more... The way my depression had manifested itself before had been more depression. And when it manifested itself during my pregnancy, I was so anxious I was non-functional. And it was really terrifying. And, uh, you know, everyone in my sort of caretaking universe, so from the obstetrician to the psychiatrist, was supportive of my going back on because I was clearly in such bad shape. Uh, but I think there was still the lingering attitude that all things being equal, it would have been better if I had been able to stay off. Um, and so, you know, I went through... Once I went back on the medication, it took about two weeks for it to kick in, which is sort of the historical how long it had taken me it for it to kick in for me um, during previous bouts of depression. And uh, after that, you know, mentally, you know, I'm I still wouldn't say that my pregnancy was a euphoric state, <laughs> but it was certainly a lot better, um, and I was functional, and I was you know had a completely healthy baby who didn't have any of the you know, there there are risks. I'm not going to pretend that there aren't, but she was not good, born without any of those. I mean, one of the common things they said is there's a risk of low birth weight, and she was a nine-pound baby, <laughs> which was delightful. And um, I guess the sort of whole experience for me was what what was brought home to me was that I still thought, even though I am aware of stigma against mental health, I think I had internalized that that stigma because I thought my depression was no big deal and I should just be able to get over it. 
And so it would have been no big deal for me to go off the meds because, you know, it was just self-pitying and this was a, a bigger deal. You know, having a baby was a bigger deal and shouldn't I be able to get over it for her if, you know, it, I, it, and it didn't occur to me that it would recur. So I think having gone through that experience, I definitely, any stigma I had against, you know, oh, depression isn't a big, big enough deal to need this was completely erased. Meg, talk a little bit about what, what patients um, have sort of told you about their considerations of the risks and benefits of taking medication during pregnancy for depression. At least just referring to what you said, you know, historically, um, it was just thought that women would feel wonderful during pregnancy. And if she went to a, a doctor, a physician, <clears throat> he'd say, oh, it's just your hormones. And most decisions were driven by the medical legal consequences. Um, and uh, if a woman had a serious depression, she would get electroconvulsive therapy. So it wasn't until like 1996 I started prescribing here in New York. Um, and what women come in with is are things like, you know, the stigma and shame of depression or any kind of mental illness during pregnancy, postpartum, you know, is greatest because you're expected to be so wonderful and happy and alive. Um, women are always concerned about whether they should be on medication or not. They're not quite sure. They've read in the paper about that one study that said, oh, you know, it's SSRIs are associated with autism spectrum disorders, but they don't know about the six other negative studies. And do you want me to say any more about studies? Uh, and well, I'd love to hear uh, a bit from Andrew's reporting, because there was a <clears throat> sort of harrowing case that you started with and a story that you wrote for the New York Times Magazine. And it kind of points to the risks on the other side, the risks of not having your depression and pregnancy treated. Well, I'd like to start by saying that as the only person on this stage who has not been and will not be pregnant, um, <laughs> I bring a slightly different perspective. Um, I did write a piece. It was a piece for which I interviewed Meg, who was unbelievably helpful. So I feel in terms of the technical side of things, I will gladly defer to you. Um, and uh, one of the things you said that actually was cut from the final version, which went through a slightly mutilatory process oh, of editing. As um, always. Indeed. Um, uh, unknown to anyone else who writes in the room, um, was that you said that for a long time, uh, doctors avoided talking about this because it put them in such a bind. And it put people in such a bind, I think, because it is clear that there are risks to um, uh, taking medication during pregnancy, and it is clear that there are risks to being depressed while pregnant. And assessing the extent of each of those risks in order to make the decision in any individual case is unbelievably difficult. And it's what you do all day, every day. So uh, I have great admiration uh, for your taking on of it, um, and I know how tough it is. Uh, the story that Catherine was referring to um, was one that uh, really propelled me deeper into this conversation than I otherwise would have been. Um, I had written a little bit about pregnancy and depression because of my interest in depression, and then someone wrote to me and said, let me tell you my story. This was the story of a woman who was um, 
uh, who named Mary Guest. Uh, she uh, grew up. She did uh, had suffered from some degree of depression through much of her life. She had severe juvenile arthritis, which gave her in many ways a very difficult childhood. She then had this um, depression that ensued, but she was quite disciplined and she managed it quite well. She got licensed to work with autistic children and did that um, very demanding and somewhat heroic work and was on medication for her depression. And her great sadness in life was that she felt um, what she wanted most of all was to be a mother and she hadn't found um, anyone she truly loved and time was marching on and she hadn't had a child. And then she met someone and had a whirlwind romance, became pregnant, decided to marry him, and decided to stop taking her antidepressant medication because she had read about the dangers of the medication for the fetus. She began to develop signs of depression, which had her mother very concerned. Her mother kept saying, are you sure this is wise? And then she began to develop a really acute anxiety. Jessica just alluded to how bad the anxiety can become. And for her, the anxiety was organized around the idea that there was something wrong with the fetus. And she would stay up all night going through endless websites, reading about problems that there could be um, in fetal development. She had multiple ultrasounds, she had multiple tests, she had amniocentesis. All indicators were that the child was just absolutely fine. But this became this consuming, consuming thing for her. Now, before she had met the um, father of her child and before she had become pregnant, she had said to her mother one day when they were sitting and talking, I'm so sorry I haven't met anyone because I think I'd be a really good mother. And her mother said, yes, I think you would be a really good mother. And then when she became pregnant um, and began to go down this rabbit hole, one day she turned to her mother and said, I just can't imagine being a mother. And the change was so striking to her mother. And her mother was very focused on her and very um, engaged. She kept on going to work, but she could do less and less when she got home. She would come over to her parents' house and sit there and just not talk for hours at a time. And um, finally, after this had been going on for a long period of time, her mother said, you have to go back on some kind of medication. She said, you can't, you're getting no sleep, you're up all night every night obsessing, you can barely function. Um, and she said, well, maybe I should. Um, and she finally um, went back on medication, but didn't stand it long enough for it to have any effect. And when she was uh, five and a half months pregnant, um, she finished a day at school working with autistic children, went to her parents' um, apartment building, went up to the top floor and jumped to her death. Now, there are many problems with depression during pregnancy that are well short of suicide. But it was when I heard that story that I thought the popular narrative, which is everywhere in the press, that the only responsible choice for a mother to make, an expectant mother to make, is to go off her medication, is having terrible effects. It's causing um, deaths like Mary Guest's, the death of Mary Guest and the child she would have born. It's causing, um, uh, it's causing people to experience postnatal depression, uh, which originates in prenatal depression, which they might not otherwise experience, and there are also physiological problems that children of depressed and especially very anxious mothers are more prone to than other parents. And I had a sense of mission about telling Mary's story. And her mother said, you know, there are people out there 
Um, she said, we feel that if Mary had stayed on her medication, she would be alive and we would have a grandchild. She said, and there are people out there who feel that if they had only gone off medication, their children wouldn't have the problems they do. These are not easy decisions. I tell the story in hopes that it will prevent others like it so that people will become more informed. It's, it's interesting because as a culture, it seems as though we, we do, at least in the last few decades, we've, we've grown to have a sense that postpartum depression is dangerous. So, so why has it taken us so long to recognize that depression in pregnancy could, could also be dangerous? It's interesting because um, when I was doing a fellowship at Columbia and I knew I wanted to work with depression in pregnancy and we were not prescribing at that point and I wanted to adapt a certain kind of psychotherapy called interpersonal psychotherapy to uh, antenatal depression. And um, I did receive funding from the National Institutes of Mental Health for two studies and um, Actually, IPT, Interpersonal Psychotherapy, did better than the parenting group because that was the control group or that I uh, gave them. Everyone said to me, you will never get pregnant women. And I got many pregnant women from my study. I mean, in the first study, although most of them were Dominican women from our catchment area, so that was a little easier. But uh, in the second study, there were 136 women, but I interviewed about 400 women. So it's just a matter, I think, of calling them out of the woodwork, uh, because they're there, certainly. And I think... What I said before, it was, and, and you said, Jessica, that, um, you know, there's just this expectation that you're supposed to feel wonderful. Right. But as, as Andrew said, you know, 50% of women who are depressed during pregnancy will go on to have a postpartum depression. Uh, earlier this year, a federal panel uh, started recommending that clinicians screen for depression in pregnancy and depression uh, after birth. Uh, I guess I wonder how, whether or not we feel like that's really going to start happening, those conversations. I mean, uh, I've only been pregnant once and, and no one ever asked me once about my mood. And I'm pretty sure I was pretty down and pretty disheveled for about half of those appointments. Yeah. Um, so, so I guess, do you think that it's really going to start happening, the screening? And if so, yeah. um, will those women be able to get treatment? Because it seems like there's a pipeline, right? If you identify a problem, exactly. then you, you do need to treat it. Do we and have those resources? And that's been the problem. You know, um, screenings, even in certain institutions, uh, the real problem is for um, women, can they afford treatment? And if you're talking about women's programs, we now have three in the city um, who are filled up. And so what we need to do is basically train mental health professionals uh, to treat pregnancy uh, and depression. And will this happen? <clears throat> you know, it's one of those things, it will happen in the major institutions. I don't think there's going to be a a force going out and checking whether people are doing it. And I think where you're going to miss it again 
is uh, low-income minority women. They're going to be the ones that miss out. I mean, while postpartum depression is 10 to 20% in women, in low-income minority women, it's 40 and sometimes 50%. So I think those are the women who are going to miss out. Hopefully it will be done, but it's not a lot of work. It's basically two questions. What are the two questions? Uh, well, one is, have you lost interest in things? And have you been feeling sad lately? A lot will give what's called the Edinburgh Postnatal Depression Scale. It's a, self, uh, a self-check inventory of just 10 questions uh, asking about depression during pregnancy. Um, I suspect those will be handed out. But it's very easy. But, you know, I think a lot of... A lot of the um, clinicians uh, are having a, going to have a problem with this because what do you do? It's, it's kind of been dropped in the OBGYN's laps. And in all honesty, I mean, they have, uh, their work is very task-oriented and they don't have the luxury of having a patient come in in a week You know, if I'm concerned about somebody, I'm not just going to send somebody out with an antidepressant not knowing how they are. They don't have that luxury, and it has been dropped in their laps. I just was going to say that in the first place, the problem of lower levels of services, especially in psychiatry, especially for low-income women um, among all groups, is enormous. So even if you're not pregnant, if you are a depressed low-income woman, you're much less likely to have, you're much less likely to have the depression diagnosed um, because a lot of people are going to think, well, you've got such a difficult life, it's no wonder you feel so terrible. You know, it doesn't occur to people there might actually be an underlying depression that is there, or that in fact it may be not you feel depressed because you have a difficult life, but rather your life is kind of a mess because you're too depressed to be able to fix it. So that's a problem that exists um, very broadly. But I think that insofar as change may occur, it requires really the, the two prongs of approach that I think this panel in some sense represent, which is to say there has to be enough medical certainty and medical experience so that other doctors can read papers that Dr. Spinelli or others have written and understand um, better what the issues are. And there has to be a higher level of public awareness. Since I wrote the article I did about pregnancy and depression, I've had dozens of letters from women who've written to me, some of whom have said, I felt this way but didn't tell anyone I wish I had known, but some of which have been from people who said, I thought I was the only one who felt this way and that there was nothing to do about it, and now I recognize that there is actually an approach to be taken and that there are things to do, and people have then been pursuing treatment. And I think if you get enough people pursuing treatment, the treatment will become more broadly available and you get into a sort of economic cycle of that, and hopefully some of it will then trickle down to those most in need. When I did my reporting on on prenatal depression in 2012, I did hear about some OBGYN practices that employed a social worker or employed, yeah, I mean, it was not common, but um, there are some places that are trying to integrate it into part of a more kind of holistic practice. So, I mean, I think that that seems like, you know, and again, as Andrew pointed out, mental health services are are pretty terrible um, across the board, especially for low-income people. Uh, but I mean, I think that there are are places that are are moving towards addressing it, and 
Also, when I did my reporting, um, I found a lot, it wasn't just low-income women who tended to suffer, rural women almost seemed to have it worst of all because they had access to just even for their, um, you know, pregnancy, they had a family doctor. They didn't even have an OBGYN locally. Um, and so that the check-ins that they were getting were so superficial is the wrong word because I'm sure their doctors really cared about them and did what they could, but it wasn't as kind of specialized treatment in, in any kind of way. And their doctors just had nothing for them if they told them they were depressed or, or just they just didn't even know how to address it. There was a recent piece that ran in the New York Times from a woman who was six months pregnant and was trying to figure out whether or not she was depressed. And it was an interesting article because what she kept coming back to was, is it just pregnancy hormones or, or am I depressed? What was interesting is she didn't tell her husband for, and she was six months pregnant by the time she realized, you know what, I really probably should speak up. So it seems like that's one of the first things that maybe we should talk about is that, you know, speaking up as early as possible and, and trying to tell the spouse instead of at least keeping it from them might be one step forward. What else would you say are some of the, the advice we would give? Well, I would start by saying that the stigma, which is doubtless what caused that woman not to speak to her husband, is enormous. Now, there are about 174 charities in the United States that are uh, focused on trying to reduce stigma around mental illness, around mental illness on college campuses, around mental illness for women, around uh, mental illness for minority groups, around mental illness altogether. It's a, a really important process. And part of the reason it's important is that people who are trying to keep their depression a secret don't get treatment. But it's also the case that it takes a lot of energy to keep that kind of secret. I mean, this woman was having to deal with her husband every day and not show the signs of how she was actually feeling. And that's isolating and it's lonely and that amount of energy could have been used instead to treat the underlying condition. I would further say though that we have allowed a general discourse to emerge in which there is a kind of split and you are either considering the health of the fetus by not taking medication, or you're considering the health of the mother by taking medication, and that people have made that sort of into a, a binary. And of course, most women, in fact, will choose the health of the child they are expecting over their own health. So as long as it gets positioned in that way, that that's the choice that's being made, most women choose to make what they believe is the unselfish choice. What's necessary is a revision in which we recognize that there is a system. There is a system that includes the mother and the child, and it will also include the mother and the child after that child is born, when a mother who is suffering from postnatal depression will struggle to provide the level of care that a needy newborn requires. That there is a system, and that what one is doing is trying to improve the outcome for that system. Um, as long as it's a story in which you feel like, I've been a weak mother who can't deal with it on my own, and I'm going to do this thing that might injure my baby because I have to, and it's because I'm sad and pathetic and other women don't have to do that. As long as that punishing narrative persists, I think we won't see meaningful change. I also think, I mean, and we've talked about this a lot in the sort of pre-interview, is that it, I don't understand why it can't be lumped in with any other illness and any other medication practice that goes along with that illness. So women who have underlying illnesses that they need medication for 
get pregnant all the time. And nobody tells them, even though the risks are in fact greater with, you know, just for example, some epilepsy medicines, you know, there's, there are greater risks, but you don't see articles blaring headlines about how epileptic women shouldn't have children, how epileptic women should go off their medication. So if, if we could just think of it as, as serious or as worthy of consideration as, you know, any other number of illnesses that women go through pregnancy treating, I, it I, would be so helpful. I agree. I also think that most people don't realize that pregnant women are already taking plenty of prescription drugs in pregnancy. Like seven out of 10 of us, according to the CDC, I'm not us, I'm not pregnant now, but seven, <laughs> I don't want to alarm my husband, but <laughs> seven out of 10 uh, pregnant women um, take a prescription drug during pregnancy. And the number of pregnant women in the last 30 years who take four or more prescription drugs during the course of their pregnancy has tripled right? That's a lot of medications. And yet in the public discourse and sadly in the media, I feel like maybe we talk about antidepressants use among pregnant women and maybe opioids. And besides that, we sort of forget about all the others. Thousands of studies on the SSRIs and other medications during pregnancy, probably about on about 30,000 women. And the one thing I would respond to with this that it's important if a woman is going to look for a physician or let's say a nurse practitioner who can prescribe, they have to um, find someone who understands and knows the literature. Um, because what they need is basically, <clears throat> I mean, what I might do if somebody comes into my office is basically what's called an informed consent procedure. I mean, to sit down and basically look at what are the risks and benefits. And I actually put on my chart risks of medication on one side, risks of illness on the other. And then you have to look at both of those things because a lot of women, a lot of people are not aware that there are adverse effects of depression, both on the mother and the fetus. So if you're looking at both of those things, you're able to make some kind of decision. Uh, and uh, sometimes the adverse effects of uh, depression in pregnancy, anxiety in pregnancy can be a lot worse than the medications. And something that's extraordinarily important, I start off all of these talks I'm sorry, talks, <clears throat> saying to them, and I will read outcomes of each of the studies on each drugs. First, we do not have one gold standard study that shows anything about an adverse effect in pregnancy because pregnant women are not allowed to be in, you know, it's not ethical to put a pregnant woman in a study. And so where all of that information comes from are either retrospective reports, hospital records, um, prescription data services. And so what they have are lots of what we call confounders. We don't know if many of those women used alcohol, over-the-counter drugs, other medications, because when you're doing a clean study, a gold standard study, you take two groups, give one medication, give the other 
no medication, but they are clean. They're not taking other meds. They don't have hypertension. They're, they don't have uh, a drug history or using alcohol. Um, so we know what we're looking at. But in those studies, you'll take the SSRIs. I mean, I hope so, right? I'll, I'll just take, i just give you an example. One study came out and said, uh, this was in 2011, that there was an increased incidence of, oh no, I'm sorry, association, because none of these can be cause effect, association between cardiac defects, Prozac, Celexa, and, um, you know, exposure during pregnancy. And then, in the abstract, it said, in the woman who took an antidepressant, there was a tenfold increase in fetal alcohol syndrome. Well, that's Talk about a burying the lead. <laughs> yeah. I wish I had told my radiologist that because they made me get a fetal echocardiogram because I think of that study yes, specifically. Yes, exactly. Now, Luckily, by, all of them yep. get them on women who are taking SSRIs. So we know that women who are depressed and taking antidepressants they are more like, or even not, or haven't, had the, haven't achieved the re antidepressant uh, response yet, they're more likely to drink, they're more likely to use uh, medication or drugs, they're depressed. So that's the kind of thing that we're focusing on. So if you want a good evaluation, don't go to a doctor who says, don't worry about it, and don't go to a doctor who says no. Go to a doctor who's willing to sit down and spend the time with you and tell you all about the outcomes. Let me just add, um, Ed, though I, again, defer to your medical knowledge, but there are, uh, there's a great deal of evidence that women who are depressed during pregnancy, and especially women who have untreated depression during pregnancy, have both medical and behavioral results. They are more likely to be using alcohol um, or other substances of abuse. They are less likely to keep um, regular appointments. They are less likely to take um, their, uh, their medications and so on and so forth. But depressed women who are not being treated also appear to have constriction of the uterine artery, uh, possibly caused by higher rates of um, higher levels of cortisol. Um, they, in uh, many instances, have disrupted sleep, which seems to have some effect. There's evidence that women who've got high levels of anxiety, fetal brain scans show different patterns of development um, that are related to that. I can't list off all of the consequences there are. People who are treated for depression are less likely to use drugs and alcohol. They are less likely um, to miss their obstetrical appointments. They are more likely to sleep adequately. They are not going to have some of these actual physiological complications. So it isn't just that sort of the medication has biologically bad effects and the... Um, uh, and the uh, and going without treatment has behavioral problems. Each of them is associated with complicated webs of both behavioral and biological issues. How, how much of these problems are, are, are kind of informed by this idea that I ran up against when I was pregnant, that you're supposed to be sort of au naturel, like as... I mean, the number of people who sort of stop you in the street to talk to you about whether or not you're going to breastfeed, it's kind of alarming. I get asked all the time about what, like, if I've hired a doula yet by strangers. 
And I'm just like, I, I don't even know you. I, I was asked <laughs> while pregnant, seven months pregnant, in the elevator at the New York Times with Bill Keller, who is then my boss, by a colleague who I don't know. I still to this day do not know her name. And in this elevator with Bill Keller, she, she sort of says to me, are you going to breastfeed? Because if you're not going to breastfeed, blah, 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 and she goes, starts... And I was just stunned. And he just looked at me and I looked at him like, oh my God, help. I, I do think this sort of root of it is all of a piece in that um, we've lost a realistic assessment of risk. And so we're trying to cut down on any behavior that might potentially be risky in any way, shape or form. And I think there's this idea that anything that's not natural is more risky. Now, Probably statistically, it's I'm more at risk taking cab home than I am at the, the the danger to my fetus by taking this SSRI. Like, look, I haven't crunched the numbers, but people get in car crashes all the time. Um, but I think because we feel like we can control what goes into our bodies, whereas we can't control a car crash, we've just lost all sense of perspective when it comes to these behaviors that we're indulging in or not indulging in when, when we're pregnant. And I think that extends to the entire motherhood culture. Um, so I think it is just this, you know, we've just lost track of what is what risk is. Yeah. And I think that there can be a sense, and I wrote about this in The Times, that pregnancy is a kind of universalized Lent and that the process of relinquishment <laughs> is somehow reassuring to some women who want to believe that if they behave right during pregnancy, they will have a child who is, you know, bouncy, cheerful, accomplished, successful, popular, whatever else it is that people want their babies to be. And you think, okay, if I never have even a sip of wine and if I always do the right exercises and if I sort of, I don't know, do whatever they may be, the various kinds of things that people are sort of giving up. Um, and, you know, there is an extent to which it's true. A lot of women who are smokers give up smoking during pregnancy. The adverse effects of smoking during pregnancy are incredibly well established, and if you're able to give up smoking during pregnancy, that will produce a more likely, a, a better outcome for your uh, baby. But as you said, when you're looking at this question of risk, we would like to think that we have a great deal more control than we have. And some of the engine for this behavior, including the giving up of antidepressants, is this wish to believe, if I do everything right, it will turn out well. Do you find that in your practice, Meg? Absolutely. And I just wanted to comment about the breastfeeding. <clears throat> <laughs> because, you know, a lot of times women who are depressed, it's very hard for, you know, especially if it's a new baby, first baby, it's hard enough sometimes to get the baby to latch. And then if they're depressed beyond, it's a real problem. And I love lactation specialists, but sometimes they're like lactation Nazis. That's what we call them. These poor women cannot leave the hospital unless they absolutely promise. And they're tortured by this, absolutely tortured. I have a colleague who just wrote a wonderful article. I wish I had it with me. Basically, the baby needs mommy, does not necessarily need her breast. Great if you can do both, but better to have mom than it is to have the breast. That sort of circles back to the, the patient story that you told, Andrew, uh, of the woman who ended up committing suicide. Because um, that, that's the whole ball game, right? If she had been 
or at least her mother hopes, if she had been medicated, she might still be here. And that's mommy, even if it's mommy via drugs. <laughs> and certainly when you look at the postnatal depression, and again, a lot of postnatal depression starts antenatally, a lot of it, not all of it, but a lot of it. Um, depressed, um, when they look at... Uh, various kinds of disturbances, but especially with Myrna Weissman, who works with um, Meg, who did the work originally, she looked at, I think, 15 different interventions for young children who were showing a variety of depression-type problems. The most effective intervention was to treat their mothers, um, and that made an enormous difference. And look, some of the reason that people get antenatal and postnatal depression may be a complicated biology in which people are hormonally sensitive and more inclined to lapse into depression at times of hormonal upheaval. But part of it is also that pregnancy can be extremely physically uncomfortable and that it is a preparation for a level of responsibility for which most people who are intelligent enough to understand what's happening to them know that they are not adequately prepared because there is no such thing as being adequately prepared. And so there is also the sense that somehow... Um, you know, this depression is um, uh, irrational and it runs counter to nature and you should be joyful. In my experience, even with people who are depressed, there are elements of anticipatory joy there, but there's also a great deal of fearfulness and anxiety and uncertainty and sense of inadequacy, all of which, I mean, I'm a father, not a mother, but I will tell you, getting started on that whole process of having a child, it's not the easiest thing in the world, even if you really feel it's basically joyful and even if you have every conceivable support in doing it. When you look at these high rates of postnatal depression among low-income women, you think for someone who doesn't know whether she's going to be able to put food on the table for herself tomorrow, now to have responsibility for this child and to be trying to balance economic pressures and social pressures and the enormous demands of a of a newborn and the lack of sleep that there tends to be, well, that there always is in dealing um, on your own with a newborn baby and so on and so forth. These things are real. And one of the problems in the society at large, I think, is not only that we don't acknowledge this depression, we also don't acknowledge that this depression is not totally irrational. We like the idea that what's happening is that people are depressed because they've had a hormonal shift. And the reality is much more complicated than that. I will say that in my, my particular case, and, you know, as Andrew said, whatever triggers depression in pregnancy and in not is, is an incredibly complicated combination of, of genetics and hormones and environment, and you, you can never untangle those things. But um, in the research that I did for the stories that I wrote about it, um, there was some correlation between... Um, having an adverse reaction to birth control to birth control and to being depressed during pregnancy because it's all progesterone, right? You're getting extra progesterone. And I, I read this wonderful book by the journalist Lauren Slater called Love Works Like This, which was her experience with prenatal depression. Um, and she had also gone off meds and then had to go back on. And there's a statistic that I can never get out of my brain that she used, that in your first trimester, you're getting the equivalent of, I believe, 400 birth control pills worth of progesterone a day. And by the last trimester, it's 1,000. And so if you are already, you know, potentially have this adverse uh, reaction to it, it's, that's going to have a major effect. 
And in, again, in my case, you know, when you give birth, your hormone levels go basically down to zero. And, and that is what triggers postpartum depression in some women. But for me, I felt amazing. I felt <laughs> euphoric. I felt myself the same. Even though once I was back on medication, I felt so much better and functional, um, I didn't feel like myself again until the day my daughter was born. And it was, and, and I almost found um, being the mother of an infant easier than I think my peers did because I was just so grateful to feel like myself again, that, you know, lack of sleep, crying, whatever. And she was quite an easy infant, so not good about that, but I just felt amazing. Um, so again, I mean, every, I think every case is so idiosyncratic, but I, I do think the hormonal component is significant. Um, response to that, you know, some women, I mean, imagine, uh, if these hormones go up to such a, an extent of 40 weeks of pregnancy and within 24 hours, they're back to baseline. Um, and some women are exquisitely sensitive to hormone changes. And these are the women who will have problems with oral contraceptives, perimenopause, and premenstruum. It just, you see it over and over again. Um, but I also want to say, while we are focusing on biology, and it's... It, it really is an important trigger in uh, female-associated uh, mood disorders and other mental illnesses even. You know, it is important to also realize that there are psychological environmental factors. I mean, that actually will affect the brain chemistry. So I think it is just important in our general discussion about depression to say it's not all biology, and you said that. Um, and I just think it's certainly worth mentioning that. Because sometimes with mild and moderate depression, you may not need medication. You know, you may be able to get through with psychotherapy. We also did some study on using light therapy during pregnancy, and it was successful. So, you know, there, there can be other means, but I'm not suggesting to use them in place of medication if somebody needs medication. Maybe we can end by talking a little bit about what some of the signs that loved ones could look for in their, in their uh, pregnant wives or sisters. Because um, sometimes I think what's so challenging about the times that I've been depressed is that you can kind of you can kind of sense uh, even in that moment that you're not quite thinking clearly, but at the same time you have a hard time sort of verbalizing to someone else that you're how you're feeling. Um, but my husband can kind of pick up on some clues. Like, I just start hating it when friends call to ask me to do fun things. And he's like, that doesn't make sense. You usually like it when that person calls. Like, why are you so exhausted by the thought that friends are calling you? And so we've sort of pinpointed, hey, that's something to look out for. Um, what are some of the signs that I mean, you mentioned in the screening if, if you've lost sort of uh, any sort of appetite for, for, for life, that's one of the screening yeah, mechanisms. Yeah. So what else no can interest. we kind of look for? That <clears throat> well, I think I just want to address one other thing. Looking for depression during pregnancy, one of the problems is that some of the symptoms of depression mimic the discomforts of pregnancy. Oh, no. So women... <laughs> 
So, you know, first trimester, women are feeling very tired. They have no motivation. Um, they're sad and tearful. Well, are you depressed or is this just the first right. trimester of pregnancy? And this is one of the... It's funny because, you know, having done research, clinical trials, you know, one of the things, you have to have these questionnaires. And, you know, you say to a woman, are you having problems sleeping? Yes. Well, is this because the baby's moving too much or are you anxious and worried? So just to go over some of those symptoms that wouldn't be the normal symptoms of pregnancy, such as the physiologic symptoms, these flu-like symptoms, your body is very heavy, you may overeat, undereat. But one regarding pregnancy is often having problems, um, I might say interacting with the fetus, but a kind of bond with the fetus. Women might feel like, there's like an alien, um, you know, I don't understand who is this baby, that kind of thing. Um, not looking forward to getting things ready for the baby, that kind of thing. And often there is an association with impaired fetal bonding and impaired bonding in infants. Um, and I think one thing that our significant others would say when somebody is depressed is, Irritability. <laughs> <laughs> but then again, pregnant ladies are yeah, <laughs> sometimes <right>. irritable. <laughs> but I think people don't realize a lot that there are other symptoms of pregnancy, of depression, that are important. Um, the physiologic symptoms, flu-like symptoms, of course the emotional symptoms, but also there's cognitive symptoms, one's perception of themselves. You know, you look in the mirror and you think, oh God, I look so ugly, or people don't like me, or their self-esteem is down, or you feel hopeless. So I like to think of it, and I'll stop after this, as three different systems. It affects emotional system, it affects physical symptoms, and it affects cognitive and uh, perception. I think we have to wrap up. Thank you so much for coming and for so many of you sharing your stories. I really appreciate you coming, and thank you for a wonderful panel. Thank you for listening to this New America NYC podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons, non-commercial, 4.0 international license. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.